In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. You hate to say it, but it does make more common sense keeping the island of Ireland secure. I would be loyalist. You would be loyalist, but you wouldn't agree with Sammy Wilson on this. I understand the point of view. So, but my personal view is, I mean, we really do need to keep a, a lid on the COVID. And the common sense way of doing it, in my opinion, would be to keep the island of Ireland. But certainly within the area, you hear stories, yeah, it has been affected. Like no worrying about maybe not, so maybe, many people aren't. Uh, well, maybe not at first, but I would say so now. The realisation is there, of just how serious it is. But again, politics, unfortunately, well, the orange and green comes into it, unfortunately, where some things have to supersede that. COVID's more important, so they should be stopped to stop the spread of COVID, not, not for any other reason. Well, I think flights should be stopped, as England seem to be getting it worse than we are here, so people are bringing it over. I just don't think it's right, mate. You know, in minute, the way things are happening, the, the Brexit thing and all the rest thing, you know what I mean? It's just the way it's working out. Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, over the last few days, several tennis stars have dropped out of the Australian Open due to strict COVID protocols. On Thursday, Pat Kenny spoke to tennis ace Pat Cash. One of the women, though, Yulia Putinseva of Kazakhstan. Now, she has uh, been very outspoken. She put a picture of herself on Instagram holding up a sign uh, which reads, We need fresh air to breathe. Is it that bad? Uh, well, I think she's in my hotel, actually, and i got to say yes. Uh, we were locked down for the first four days before we were allowed out to that, as I, I said, to minimal uh, uh, exposure. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, not, it's not great. And, and uh, you know, they, they, there's just no way around candy coating yeah. the fact that players are going to really struggle to get into their form. And that's what's frustrating. them. They've come out to Australia. They all want to win the Australian Open. They all want to perform their best. And they, they just simply can't. And we can't get the training. Even the ones like myself, we go out to the tennis. We're restricted by how much practice we can get and what we can do. But, uh, look, in, by the time it gets to the end of the Australian Open, I think players will be in pretty good form. There is a very, very good tennis. And I think before yeah. long, we'll sort of forget that this all this quarantine had happened and, and we'll just be enjoying tennis. Yeah. Now, your country has done particularly well uh, to almost reach zero COVID. I mean, after the initial outbreak, the policy of, you know, guarding your borders, making people, you know, bussing them to hotels where they had to quarantine for a couple of weeks, checking up on them, uh, all of that kind of thing. It worked very well. I have a brother-in-law living in Sydney and he tells me, you know, that by and large, life is normal. Yeah, it is for the moment. Um, but Australia has to open their doors at some stage. And uh, I think that's the concern. And they're putting, they've really uh, put themselves in a, uh, I suppose, you say, uh, one basket vaccine prayer that, uh, that this will sort of, the vaccine will make a difference and that uh, things will, we, the world will get back to normal. Because, um, you know, the, certainly a lot of people are suffering in Australia financially. Uh, obviously, Australia's second biggest industry is, is tourism after uh, mining, uh, and that's suffering uh, badly. But uh, the people out in the public, and you talk to my friends, and they say, look, it's fine. We just feel like we're, we're normal. But there's a lot of people losing their jobs, as you can ex- expect. 
And at some stage, um, they've got, have to open up, and they've and they've they've committed themselves to extreme lockdowns consistently. Victoria was the most extreme lockdown per capita of illness and death, and the average death age was very very high, eighty or something along those lines. And, and there wasn't many, but they've 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 committed to that. So um, they're going to be locking down. In my opinion, they're going to be locking down for a long long time before they'll be able to to really open up and to be on and off and on and off. Possibly, I think probably for a couple of years, uh, and uh, we certainly we think most most people commentating here said the Australian Open will be something along the same lines uh, next year as this year, coming down, locking down for two weeks before you're able to access it, and I think probably the rest of the world will start opening up before Australia do and New Zealand for that matter. Pat Cash there from the Pat Kenny Show. How do you feel, Hazel, when you're... I mean, I'm, I'm trying to bring myself inside the mansion house now yesterday. And, and, and it's not just yesterday, because we've actually... We, we've talked to you before here on Lunchtime Live about um, previous incidents that have happened. But the mansion house is where you live during your tenure as the, the Lord Mayor of Dublin. Um, it's your home for the moment. And you have a right to feel comfortable and not to I- feel threatened or unsafe in your home, did you did you feel like that yesterday or during previous days? I yesterday, like the guards were here, and it was uncomfortable some of the interaction. But I didn't feel unsafe. I didn't feel I was at risk or danger, and that's that's the thing. I think I want to highlight the fact that there were issues here yesterday. I, I didn't say it at the time because we were the guardy were also here, and they they made a arrest, and I. I but for me, it was, and they were here, and I didn't feel unsafe. And even inside the house, there's some there's people here, so there's always a case of oh, like that the house is safe and I'm safe. My, my worry, however, when there are people out there that I know are specifically against me, uh, not for any particular reason than who I am, I worry for my child. So I worry yeah. like what I would do when I, I guess go out is I look around and that seems and I was saying this earlier on um, is that I, I, I don't want to over egg it but I don't want to downplay it and I don't know what's the best way to describe that feeling of not quite sure um, whether your child is safe and maybe that's that's a parent paranoia more than anything else mm-hmm. so but when when there have been people outside your home and you're bringing your child to to, to the car then or going outside for a walk and you're looking over your shoulder it's a really odd feeling to, to, to adopt so all of a sudden so well, absolutely and, and your daughter is there and we can you know we can hear her there in the background now today and like as a mum it, it must be concerning for you in the mansion house when, when she's there and obviously they're with you and and, and and you're dealing with criticism and having to hit out again at, you know th- these kind of comments it, it's definitely a, a, a not a very comfortable feeling I, I don't want to say it, it's terrifying or anything because yeah, it's not I like know, I, I know that yeah yeah I, I at the end of the day I, I know we're massively privileged and honored to be here like we it is a it is a, a great role to be in and it's a privilege to be in the house but at the same time it's um, surreal and slightly uncomfortable when people feel their need to protest against me here. I like I, I will welcome protests um if you want at at I guess 
civics, not that the chief executive would like me saying that, but uh, or city hall, or maybe if it's the fact that I uh, didn't live here, it will be absolutely fine as well. So, um, but it is, it is slightly kind of. Um, do you have a message, Hazel, for people that you know that are protesting? Just bearing in mind that you you are in the mansion house with your family and your 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 young, your young child. I would say to people, if you have an issue with me, I am more than happy that you address those issues if they are specific issues that are not to do with my uh, uh, um, ethnic minority or my uh, or my skin color, mainly because I can't change those for you. I just and nor should that, you have you to. Nor should you have to have to no, say no, this exactly. Nor should I have to, and that that's a bigger problem we have to discuss. However, if you have an issue with my policies, if you have an issue with what I'm doing with my job, absolutely yeah. bring it to my attention. If you if you disagree, protest, yes, but I would ask you to then also do it respectfully and be mm, mindful of yes. the fact that uh, this is somewhere I'm living with my child and I really, like, I don't want her to have to, uh, I, don't, I don't mind her seeing protests, but I do mind when things are being shouted at her mother that she can't change at all. Yeah. And in okay. previous cases, not yesterday, like Alex herself have been called names like mongrel so, or or oh, um, or, or told that she should be deported even though she, she lives it, like is born here. So so I, I think things like that needs, absolutely we need to change and I, we need to change it together. It's why I'm so adamant that this month we're going to kick off the integration strategy for Dublin. We're going to okay. look at discrimination in general yeah. for the city and that's what we need. That's what I need everyone's help in to, to okay. look at how we address these problems. What a shocking experience to go through. Dublin Lord Mayor Hazel Chu from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. My name is Christian Dunn. I'm 17 years old and I'm from Cavan and I'm doing the Leave Insert this year. Christian, uh, we're here in your garden, we're in a rural part of Cavan, just outside Cavan Town. The name of the place is uh, Stragalif. On the hill, I can see lots of aerials and stuff like that, but but broadband, not so good here. No, it's not great. Uh, it's very patchy. If you're on a call or on an online class, uh, it disconnects a lot and you can't hear full sentences the teachers are saying. So obviously it'll be very hard to learn that way. So when Microsoft Teams drops when you're in the middle of a class and this is your leaving cert year. How do you cope with it? It's uh, very difficult because you can't hear anything really the teachers saying in class. I'll have to like get notes off teachers after class and try catch up in my own time. So it lends out my school day on top of the homework and study then it's very difficult to keep up. And the teachers know that the, you're not dosing, you're not using it as an excuse. Your internet is poor. Yeah, so if they ask me any questions or anything, I have to ask them to repeat the question, you know, type it out in chat because um, obviously I can't hear them. So I have to type my answers out instead of talking. Uh, there's a few other people with the same problem in my classes. Your teachers in St. Patrick's College in Cavan, they understand? They understand, yeah, what's going on. With the Leaving Cert itself, I think that students should have the option between predicted grades and to sit the exam. I think that would probably be the best for everyone. I would like the option uh, that people would ha- have predicted grades or the exam. Personally, I'd like predicted grades. Uh, but I know a lot of people do want the exam to go ahead, so that would be the fairest way. And how is your family, how are your friends, how are they doing when it comes to getting through the pandemic? Uh, I think they're doing all right. Uh, I'd say a few friends are probably struggling with uh, mental health problems and uh, trying to keep up with workload in school. Any message you want to say to the broadband providers? Have better uh, customer service. Yeah, just need uh, increased broadband speed so we can uh, get back to work. Mark, being the dad, 
you're obviously trying to be supportive, you're trying to help him, uh, you're trying to homeschool him, but you're also working from home too. So your broadband for work is poor. It is. It's, uh, it's very, as Christian said, it's very patchy. And uh, it's, it's very frustrating, we're in the middle of a meeting and then it just drops. You could be gone for uh, 20, 30 seconds and... And then you miss the joke in the meeting or perhaps the important bit? Yeah, more than likely the joke rather than the important <laughs> bit. And uh, like if you miss this part of the class, even for five minutes, it's going to have an, an impact in the long run because he has to try and catch up then. Do you think having good broadband, and we know the government are rolling out uh, broadband across the country, they, they hope to to have hundreds of thousands of people with broadband in the next seven years. Do you feel that you've been left behind, that perhaps having a decent connection is like having a utility now? It's like having water or, or gas or electricity. Well, it is. It's, it's a vital, it's an essential uh, luxury that we need. You know, like we have to have it. We can't function without good broadband. So it's broadband. no longer a luxury, is it? No, I mean, in, not, the, in no. the pandemic. No, it's not. We need it to, to keep going. So you're a dub originally, you've been up in Cavan 14 years, uh, you've been in this house two years. Is Cavan just patchy? Is it because it's just not financially viable for the broadband providers to come to you because you're in a very secluded area? Well, first of all, I'm not a dub, I'm actually from Bray. <laughs> uh, thank you for correcting me, yeah. you're from Bray on the Dublin border? Yeah, a lot of it is Dublin centralised, you know, like the, the whole uh, economy is veering towards Dublin and I think the government sort of veered that way as well. Do you think rural Ireland does get ignored? It's all about Dublin? It does. Like it's, uh, the, the provincial towns are left behind by the government. Hi, I'm Joanne. I'm Christian's mum. Because we have very hit and miss internet here, there's four of us using it at the moment. Two for school and two for work. So it does cause problems, especially with Zoom meetings and that where you drop out and then you're missing important information. My youngest daughter is 13. She's using it for sixth class. And then obviously Christian's using it for sixth year. So it makes it quite difficult. I'm having a chat with Jane with a Y done. You're in a sixth class. How are you finding uh, school at the moment, uh, doing it via the computer? Like it's hard because I don't have any interaction with my teacher. It keeps uh, like stopping um, when we're on a call. I miss seeing my friends. So how do you do school in sixth class if the internet is poor? Our teacher just assigns us our stuff and then on Tuesdays and Thursdays we have a call with our teacher. Henry McKean reporting for the Pat Kenny Show. People will still be able to travel into this country from, again, to give the example uh, of Amsterdam. Uh, and they'll be told to go off and quarantine at home or in an apartment or, or, or wherever they feel is suitable. And there might be a Garda phone call at some point or a HC phone call but at some point down the line. Like that, that will continue to be the case. I, you, you give the British example, and I'm glad you did, because that's an example of why surely we should have mandatory 14-day quarantine for everybody in designated centres. Because by the time you crack down, and people will appreciate you crack down quickly, it was already here. Like, Why are we risking a repeat of that with another strain? Well, first of all, we're not, in terms of the restrictions, no one travel would be very severe. Uh, and particularly on, on Irish people coming back in, uh, which is probably the riskier uh, element of this um, in terms of the numbers who have been abroad and who have been coming back in over, uh, since the Christmas period. Uh, but we are bringing in legislation to give that capacity and we are examining further then how additional quarantine measures can be brought in in terms of uh, both legislation and all of the issues that are involved in, in terms of Irish mm. citizens being quarantined. So, so because the issue actually is with uh, Irish citizens yeah. Um, so at some point in the future we might have that system. We might, we might, yeah. Absolutely. We're ruling nothing out in yeah. terms of... Oh, but, but the key point though is... Why was he slow about doing it? But, but the key point is what, the, the current spread of the, the virus is not from, from travel uh, alone right now. 
it's 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 in the country. So and, you know, to be fair to people, they've been adhering very well no, to, 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 the, to the regulations. Oh, and they're coming down. The, the numbers are coming down. But we want to go harder on it, both from the travel perspective uh, and indeed continuing on the, the restrictions until the 5th of March um, to make sure we can crush the numbers, but also relieve the pressure on the hospitals and, and on our ICUs. Yeah, I, 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 the I, other issue, yeah. like, is Northern Ireland and, and the border, and that mm-hmm. has been a big weakness in terms of travel, uh, because there's an Achilles heel there in terms of people in a position to come into the north uh, and travel into the Republic. Then, where we we don't have uh, any checks uh, and so on. What we're now doing here is going to make it uh, uh, statutory uh, that you have to uh, um, obey the same requirements once you come into the Republic. Uh, as everybody else yeah. uh, who comes in via Dublin. Are, 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 are we going to step up the, the, the checks on people travelling north and south? We had a remarkable situation in the show yesterday where just before we came on air, the Gardaí confirmed about 1,500 people had been fined for breaching the 5K limit, including you know people going for a walk on a beach that was outside their 5K. And then our own reporter, Henry McKean, told us yesterday he drove from Dublin to Belfast and back again and not a single guard or PSNI officer stopped to ask him where he was going. Yeah, across, attorney, across an international frontier. Yeah, the Attorney General is examining, examining that legally uh, with a view to enabling us to, to deal with that if legally and on a statutory basis in terms of uh, people coming in from Northern Ireland into the Republic uh, in terms of our capacity to, to, to police that as well. But, but you, you don't need the Attorney General to tell you that you, you, you can put a big guard at checkpoint on the M1. Uh, look, hold on a second. I mean, the people... I think you need a bit of understanding of what's happening at the border. I mean, a lot of people don't seem to have that understanding, like who, who, who live far from the border. There's seamless interaction at the border. Now, we're inter- yeah. we are interested in having stronger measures to police traffic over, and, and the Gardaí have been actually doing that, and they have had checkpoints on the M1, and they've had checkpoints at different locations back from the border, and that will continue. Um, but there is a lot of seamless interaction goes on, because people are working both sides of the border, as you know, they, they, they travel and so on to work, uh, and that there has to be a balance there in terms of uh, obviously being conscious of that reality, whilst at the same time, yes, uh, clamping down and, and, and creating stronger legal strictures of, uh, on people who would yeah. breach our rules there, and that will happen. And yeah. that's, that's no, 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 nobody's <coughs> suggesting you stop people doing it, but I can't drive from County Kilkenny to County Carlow at the moment without the guards stopping me to ask where I'm going. Yet, yet, yet someone at the moment can cross an international frontier to Northern Ireland and we're saying we need the Attorney General to give us advice. No, no, we have to, get, we have to, we have to ground it on, proper, on a proper legal footing. Kieran Cuddihy there, from the hard shoulder. Here comes the sun, I say, it's
Great Nina Simone as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Tuesday, News Talk Breakfast explores the rise in eating disorder hospital emissions during the COVID pandemic. Rosanna, let me bring you in. I know you have spoken about your own difficulties with, with eating and your relationship with food, and I think it's extremely helpful. For people listening, how does an eating disorder affect your life? Well, for me, I guess, it started off with the diet, um, which led to binging and purging, which led to bulimia, and then eventually anorexia. Um, I restricted my calories every single day to a very low intake. I had such an immense fear of gaining weight that I just carried around this anxiety the whole time, particularly around food. Um, I exercised excessively. My weight was everything to me. My whole life was dependent on what weight I was on the scales and how people saw me. And I guess that was really driven by me wanting to be accepted as part of society. And society really kind of leans into that message that losing weight is good, gaining weight is bad. And you find, I know what I did when I first started losing weight, people really compliment you. So I was really tied into this version of myself that if I lost weight and if I was a low weight, I was going to be more successful. I was going to be more accepted. People were going to like me better. And I guess the real thing was I wasn't living life my life revolved around what I ate. My life revolved around what I looked like, what weight I was. and Did it interfere with loads of things in terms of what you did or your relationships with people? That, that kind of, like, it sounds very restrictive. Oh, of course. I couldn't have a proper relationship with my family, with my friends, with boyfriends, because I only cared about what weight I was. So I couldn't be there for someone if they were going through something else. I couldn't be in the moment because I was always thinking about what am I going to do when I'm around food next? Because the idea of being around food, the idea of eating was so overwhelming to me and there were so much choices involved, I kind of wanted to avoid it and it consumed all my thoughts. So it affected me massively. Like I couldn't connect with people because I wasn't even able to connect with myself. My identity was my eating disorder. That positive feedback that you were getting for doing something harmful to yourself, do you know what I mean? You were saying when you were probably purging and binging and... and, and all the negative stuff, but you were losing weight and people go, oh, you look great. Does that add to the difficulty of breaking this cycle? Oh, big time. My biggest fear when I was going getting help, which I went to CBTE and trying to break out of my disordered eating, was the fear of gaining weight because I didn't know how people or if people would accept me. People had already told me they prefer this version of me. So how was I going to re-enter with who I really am? which is not someone who is skin and bone. Some brave words there from model and author Rosanna Purcell from Youth Talk Breakfast. 
Now, on Thursday last, we heard the sad news of the passing of one of Ireland's greatest athletes, Jerry Kiernan. And the tributes came flooding in. Here's Eamon Coughlin. Yeah, well, I've known Jerry, as I say, since we were young teenagers and we competed against one another. We trained with one another. We spent an awful lot of time with one another outside of athletics. We spent a lot of time working with Bill O'Hurley and RTE. And we were just great friends. Um, but... Uh, Jerry was a very hard worker. He may not have had all the the natural talent that I was lucky enough to have. And at the same time, I had to work for it to come out. Uh, And it came out perhaps a little bit easier. But Jerry really worked harder than any other athlete I would have known during my era. Uh, I might have done 70, 80, 90 miles a week. Jerry was prepared to do 100, 120, 130, 150 miles a week because he had such belief in himself that he wanted to be an Olympian. And his dream came true when he qualified for the marathon uh, in the 1984 Olympic Games along with Dick Cooper. And coincidentally, John Tracy didn't qualify for the marathon in 1984. And thanks to Al Guy, one of Ireland's great athletics official, he was able to, if you like, get John in through the back door. And little did we know that John would go on and win an Olympic medal that year. But also, little did we know that Jerry Kiernan would be putting it up to him and Carlos Lopez through 20 miles in, in the marathon. And everybody was saying, gee, maybe the two boys might pull off a medal here. But that was all down to Jerry's really guts, his guts. He believed so much in himself, but he had to work so hard in order to achieve what he achieved. He won numerous national titles. He represented Ireland many, many, many times. Um, And as I say, he was a four-minute miler. He was an all-rounder. But what he learned from his sport, he gave that back to many, many young men and women. Yeah. It certainly seems that way, listening and seeing a lot of the tributes that have been coming in today from his former students, who you touched upon from his teaching yeah. work and his work with Kira McGeehan, who she was describing him as a, a father figure and how it was breaking her heart yeah. when she was leaving Dublin to go to Manchester, not for leaving Dublin, not for leaving her boyfriend, but because she wasn't going to be working with Jerry anymore. And she was making the point that on the outside, he was maybe seen as a hard man, but once you got to know Jerry and once that he was part of that, you were part of that inner circle, he just gave absolutely everything to everyone. Jerry was a very soft man. Uh, he was somewhat strange character, but at the same time, he was a hard worker, as I said, and he wants to instill those ethics that were required in order to become a champion at the highest level, not just in Ireland, but in the world. He had to work hard. So when he came across some of his young athletes over the years, he realized that these kids thought they were really training hard. And he saw how I trained and how John Tracy had trained and how some of the great athletes in the late 70s and early 80s trained. So he wanted to instill that philosophy of hard work in those people. And as a result of that, people probably criticized him because he wanted to uh, train the athletes beyond what everybody else believed they should be doing. But that was Jerry's way. Whatever Jerry did, he did it his way and he did it well. Nathan Murphy and Eamon Coughlin paying tribute to the great Jerry Kernan on Off the Ball. Now, the question of a border pole and where we are in Northern Ireland. I mean, you, I know, have pointed out there are far more, more peace walls, so-called yeah. peace walls, dividing communities now than there were at the end of, uh, of the Troubles. Yeah. So the border pole, people would say, look, don't poke the bear. Leave the bear alone. Don't go near the hornet's nest. Leave it alone. 
Um, what do you say? Well, I don't think it is a bear or a hornet's nest. It's constantly present. It's a fundamental part of the Good Friday Agreement is that there is a provision for a border poll, which will be called by the Northern Ireland Secretary appointed by Westminster. And it's clear that a border poll is going to be coming at some point in the next 10 years. It's clear that that has been sped up. I think the appetite for that has been sped up by the Brexit project. And it's clear, too, that the Brexit project has made people very frightened of the idea of, you know, a 51% majority, that being the thing that decides. And that is the mechanism that will decide the question as to the border poll. So it's coming, and I don't think we can avoid that. And therefore, I think there needs to be really wise questions all across the island, not just in the north and not just in the border communities. I'm from Cork myself, and I think all across the island, we need to have conversations about what does a new Ireland mean? How do we want to live together as populations on the island? I heard Tomás Ryan on with you just earlier on speaking, you know, about the possibility of a of an island-based approach to the question of Brexit. There's going to continue to be ways within which we need to treat the population of Ireland, north and south, as a single population. And therefore, we need to have the capacity to have Ireland-wide conversations about this. So it's, I think it's a great opportunity, yeah. but it needs to be planned for. Um, but, but sometimes, and I know you've, you know, coming from Cork, spending time in Northern Ireland, uh, you understand how there is a mentality in the Republic of, not so much in the border counties, of course, but um, say in Dublin and further south, that it's all up there. It's different. It's not yeah. the same. And trying to create that uh, fellow feeling, if you like, because I've often thought that if, if the unionists face the reality of... of they would be a tiny part. Uh, what would they be? Um, half a million, more, a little more people in uh, attached to an England, never mind Scotland and Wales, an England that didn't yeah. really have much time for them. Would they not be better off being attached to uh, a smaller five million unit in the Republic that would cherish them a little bit more? Well, that's one of the arguments that I think is really important to say is simply on a pragmatic point of view. Lots of the reasons against a border poll or against a, a new uniting Ireland or a shared Ireland. There's different ways of talking about it. Lots of the arguments against it for the unionist community are ideological. But I think on a very pragmatic level to say you'll have phenomenal representation. You will have extraordinary opportunities and there will be a lot of investments which will be of great benefit to the population when it comes to jobs and opportunities. So I think there's need for all kinds of arguments, the ideological and the pragmatic, as well as the historical, to be put across and find ways that fears can be allayed and that you can talk about what you're actually exploring. Now, Borek, um, would you, in the, the offering of a, a referendum, uh, have to say what the vision is of a united Ireland or a united island, shall we say, because... Yeah. You know, there's got to be, you're a mediator, so you know there's got to be give and take. So things about the Republic would have to change. Things about Northern Ireland would have to change. So what would that entity look like post-border poll were it to be successful? Well, there's all kinds of brilliant ideas. Um, Katie Hayward in, in Queen's University in Belfast has been involved in a border commission that has been looking at questions about what the possibility of offerings would be. One of the things we know is that uh, a border poll would have to be much more comprehensive um, than Brexit. Brexit, everybody just got a pamphlet through the door that didn't mention the north of Ireland at all. 
whereas a border poll on a legal level, because of the rules regarding a referenda in the Republic, a border poll would have to make a, a, a proposition, a serious proposition that would be constitutionally binding to the people and provide all the information along with that. And that, I think, is a really important thing. On top of that, we'd have a double majority where you need a majority in the Republic and a majority in the North. And those, I think, are things that should allay people's fears to say, is this just going to be Brexit all over again? It can't be because the Republic is a constitutional democracy. Britain is not a constitutional democracy. It's a parliamentary democracy. They're, mm. they're not built for deciding things by referenda, whereas a constitutional democracy like the Republic is, and therefore a border poll would have to follow those rules. Interesting comment from one of the News Talk listeners. If people calling for a United Ireland were honest, they would admit that a United Ireland means the end not only of Northern Ireland but also the Republic. Both would cease to be. And with that, Aranavian gone, the tricolour gone, everything else. It all goes as we create a new state with new symbols and traditions. We wonder if the unions are ready to adapt, but are we? There's the question. I think that's a, that's a very astute and wise question. I would possibly offer a different way than saying the end of, I would say it's change. And I think we've seen in the referenda in the last 10 years in the Republic how powerfully as a population we're able to embrace change, constitutional change, to say this is a way of addressing with a certain sense of lamentation the past and a certain sense of hope the future. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the opportunity that a border poll would present to us as a possibility of change and a possibility of looking at some of the things that were written into the Constitution, some of the things that are written into our own Levine and considering are these the words that we want to use for the Ireland we wish to see today and in the future. From the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it. With Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. On Sunday last, Hidden Histories brought us back to the polio epidemic of the 1950s. Here's historian and author Donald Fallon. Cork has the dubious honour of, of being the last significant outbreak of the disease in, in, in Europe. And despite the fact that this was a big, big story in its day, there's very few kind of first-hand accounts of it. And that's not all that unusual, to be honest. That's true with, the, with cholera, it's true with Spanish flu. Generally, people that are living through history, they don't kind of stop to record it. You know, they don't write their their day to day diaries, as we all probably should have been doing last mm. year. Historians of the future will have... look at all of our tweets to see how bored we were. <laughs> Watched Bridgerton again. <laughs> Tiger King. But what we do have are, are kind of endless first hand accounts, you know, from from the time in the newspapers and sometimes surprising places uh, like the doll. I mean, you had a TD in Galway, for example. Uh, complaining that you know hordes of people from Cork were coming to the West on their on their summer holidays, and they paint this real picture of of, of fear. Mm. Cork notifies its first case thirteenth of June, and by the second week of August nineteen fifty six, ninety cases had occurred in the city, thirty four in, in in County Cork, and I think the word polio was a lot more familiar to Irish people than the illness was. It was kind of synonymous with America. You know, outbreaks were, were relatively common in the US mm -hmm. uh, right across the country. And no one really knew how this thing spread. There were all kinds of theories that began to spread from the Lee side. Some people said it came with clothing that was sent from the United States, you know, relatives sending secondhand clothes across to the kids uh, in Ireland. People said it came from pasteurized milk. It was spread by flies. It's really, really interesting to look at the Cork Press in 56. 
and the theories people were putting forward for mm. you know where this mystery illness uh, was coming from. It is, of course, it's worth stressing that that it was relatively common in the US in earlier decades as well, because we're talking about the mid 1950s here, and in the mid 1940s, you had the death of the US president who was wheelchair bound for a lot of his adult life, Franklin Roosevelt, as a result of polio. So it wasn't wasn't quite as as totally unique as people might think, uh, but nonetheless. Cork, in the midst of all of this, it, it goes into almost something comparable to our modern day lockdowns. It's a total halt on least. And it's a weird one because it kind of seems that people kind of self-imposed restrictions on themselves that, that went above and beyond the authorities. So there's a by-election in, in, in Cork in August 56 and there's really bad turnout. Like less than half uh, the electorate actually go out and vote. The streets are empty, shops are empty, but they're not ordered to close. I mean, it's a real sign of, of fear. And given that the disease primarily affects children, school closures are brought in. Uh, and then some of the restrictions today seem kind of odd to us. So children under 12 years of age were not admitted to cinemas. So if you were you know, 12 and a half, you could go to the cinema. But if you were 11 and a half, uh, you couldn't. Like they really, really didn't know how, how to deal with this. But what's interesting about it when you look at the geography of Cork is that the disease kind of it ravages particular districts. And it's not necessarily those that, that, you, that you expect. Uh, Donald O'Donovan, who was a civil servant working for the, the, the chief medical officer in Cork, he writes that the majority of the cases occurred in the more well-to-do suburbs like Douglas uh, and Bishopstown. And there was a suggestion that, you know, people that were exposed to poor quality water and to poor sanitary conditions in general kind of fared better. That, you know, kids okay. in tenement blocks might have had some kind of immunity uh, to this. Okay. So the idea that this illness was spreading through kind of suburbia, you know, among the middle class. Yeah. I think that really adds to the fear of it. Sure, and what is yeah. the, the United States in the mid 20th century? is the most developed you know, capitalist society in the world, and it's the epicentre of, of polio. So there's a real worry about where this thing spreads and how, and how it spreads. And uh, the, the Cork medical officer is on record as saying the higher the standard of living, the greater tendency towards uh, the disease. Mm. So I think that is really part of the, the fear of, of polio, is the, the level at which it hits yeah. in society. Fascinating stuff there from On The Record with Gavin Riley. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 11 till 1. On Saturday, John Fardy caught up with actor, producer and director Ray Fiennes for screen time. Here's a short clip. Not, not to be tabloidy about it, but it's funny. I was wondering, was there a hint of romance there? Because she asks him to dinner and not to give a spoiler, but then you seem almost vaguely disappointed, or Basil does, when his wife shows up. But you see it clearly as, I don't want to say platonic, but one of a spiritual plane as opposed to a physical plane. Spiritual plane, yeah. I, I, I never felt that there was a, a romantic connection that would lead to anything physical that never I guess I asked myself that question, but it was all a, about a deep, a deep, he has a, I mean, I think there's no question in my sense that Basil is completely loyal to May. She yeah. understands him in one way, but Edith, I think, sees his deeper spiritual connection, perhaps, to the earth and to the archaeology, perhaps more than his wife does. Sure. There was, uh, I, I'm not great on British geography. It's hard enough knowing Irish geography. But from what I gather, you're from Suffolk, and this is very much a, a piece of Suffolk, and it was right clear that this wasn't London or anywhere else. Was it nice to be back in that part of the world, metaphorically even? It was, it was great, and it was, it was quite odd because, uh, yeah, I've always been back to Suffolk. I mean, I only lived there for the first six years of my life, but always went back. Well, through my parents, I had friends there and I worked on farms there when I was a teenager. 
and have gone back and maintained contact with friends in Suffolk. And then I, I actually had committed to renting a small cottage, very not too far from the Sutton Hoo, maybe, maybe 25 minutes, 20 minutes drive. And I had, and this was before the film was green lit. <laughs> and then, then the film was green lit to shoot in September of 19. Right. And uh, for the first few days, our locations were literally within driving distance of where I was living, where the house I was renting. In circles so you move and something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I could just, I was picked up in the morning from where I was, you know, and it wasn't, it was, it was a house I was renting independent of the film company. It was my own choice. So it was, and uh, that felt kind of serendipitous in the great way to go to yeah. work from my own home so closely on location. Yeah. Well, uh, serendipity speaking, the last time I saw you, uh, you won't remember this because you didn't see me, but was in the Gate Theatre in 2006. Yeah. The Faith Healer. I had the pleasure of seeing your wonderful performance in, in that Blind Freel play, me and my wife. And we, we probably went as to see a Hollywood star and left as, you know, a, a fan of that play. Is it, was it fun to do that, to, you know, be away from the Hollywood machine and just, you know, I don't know, leave your hotel and possibly walk to a theatre every day for three weeks or six weeks or whatever it was? It was amazing. I mean, I got to, I love that theatre. I, um, I, I love the spirit of that theatre very much. Mm. I particularly, I value the uh, connection, the, the friendship I made with Brian. Okay. and his wife, Anne. Um, and that was very, it was extraordinary for me. And also because another part of my life, I had lived in Ireland as a child in yeah. West Cork for a bit and then in Kilkenny. And my mother was claimed half Irish roots or background. So I, I felt to, to go back, to, to go to Dublin and do that play was was a great, uh, it meant a lot to me many on, in many ways. And um, Obviously, I was following behind the great spirit of Donald McCann, which was a bit intimidating. But I never, I felt that, you know, that sort of all those anxieties went. It was a very enriching experience. Then we took the play to Broadway. So I count that as one. Yes, and I love, I love the theatre. And I love, I, I, I feel frustrated. And I don't get on stage at least once every two years. I, I feel a part of, what I love doing is not being answered. Actor, producer and director Ray Fines from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from six till seven. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Moncrief. Here's Sean Moncrief and Simon Tierney on Stuff That Changed the World. Have a great weekend. Because you did mention that about the eight track became, you know, was standard in cars for years. I, I would imagine something similar then must have happened as regards the cassette, because then suddenly all cars had cassette players. And that was a game changer as far as record companies were concerned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there, there was the eight track player, but there was also the highway hi-fi, um, which was an in-car, in-car record player. Chrysler, the car joint, they brought out a car record player in the uh, in the 19, 1956. Sounds very practical. Now, it didn't take a 12-inch. It took a 7-inch, which was right. particularly heavy. But, of course, the problem was that every time the 
side came to an end. As you were driving down the highway, you had to lift the needle, <laughs> flip it over, or find another record, delicately put it back on, move the arm back out, put the needle down. And while, not crash. And yeah. not crash the car while you were at it. <laughs> so, brilliant. So eventually Phillips brought out their first in-car cassette player, the RN582 in 1968. Huge success, Sean. The ability to very cheaply and easily play music in your car. And I should mention, you know, the thing, like I remember just, you know, millions of tapes lying around the bottom of the car and they were easy to keep in the glove box mm. and they were they were hardy things. They weren't like CDs where you had to delic- delicately hold them or indeed vinyl. You could kind of throw them around the place. Of course, as I said before, everyone had the experience of it eating your cassette tape and then you'd have to pull those 135 metres out oh, of your car deck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, plus also a lot of people go, why does a CD sound like it's being sung underneath the ocean? Yes. And then finding out there was a thing called a head cleaner where you'd actually have to look after it a bit. Uh, uh, Lauren says, how can cassettes be coming back? Surely the only reason to have a hard copy of any album is for the artwork and the whole collector thing. In that case, you're always going to choose the vinyl. It just looks uh, way nicer. Well, indeed, because, you know, it's where the artwork comes into its own. Siobhan says, uh, cassettes were great. I don't know if this makes any sense to anyone else, but there was something so ergonomic about them. A nice size, a lovely click when you put them into the old ghetto blaster. Uh, I love them. Graham says, anything that hastens the return of the album is fine by me. I think streaming culture has really harmed the quality of music now. Uh, Musicians think primarily of one-off hits rather than a long interwoven project. Well, I suppose vinyl is doing that as well because that makes the difference if you listen to a whole album now. Yeah, and I I think your first texture there, Sean... we shouldn't forget that like vinyl is still very, very expensive. Um, if you're buying a new album on vinyl, hey, it's a beautiful product. It's a beautiful object. But a cassette tape is always going to be a lot more, che- is going to be a lot cheaper because it's, yeah, it's much true. smaller. It's much easier to make, etc. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I have I have a never used digital cassette tape, uh, which is incompatible with uh, regular cassettes. Oh, yeah, you're you're they they came in uh, and went very quickly. Those little digital uh, cassette tapes. Uh, Dermot says I can still hear myself shouting at Dave Fannings to stop talking, so I could tape the Fab Fifty off the radio at Christmas. <laughs> uh, HP pencils were great to wind them back up. That's true. That they were good, for, great for that. Uh, I, uh, ah, the whole tape rewinding. I rather Rather time-consuming activity, perfect to pass the time during algebra class. I used to own the perfect pencil, not perfect for its writing ability, but for its diameter that would fit into the holes in the tape, allowing for effortless rewinding. Those were the days. And uh, Jordan says, uh, uh, the stuff the da had, a Triumph estate, wall not dash, leather seats with an eight-track built in. We had three cassettes for it, all Simon and Garfunkel, which was grand, but slightly limited. Sound quality was excellent compared to C. 90 cassettes. Happy memories. Wow. Her dad was cool. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.